Welcome to the Pro Politics Podcast. I'm Zach McCrary. I've been working in politics for the better part of two decades, but at heart, I'm a political junkie who wants to talk to interesting people involved in politics. This episode is being released on November 8, 2022, Election Day. So I wanted to do something a little different. I thought about inviting on some of the race raiders to give predictions, maybe a journalist or two to tee up the most interesting races of the cycle. But there are no shortage of places for people to get election hot takes, which has never been the point, uh, the mission of this podcast. And I also didn't want to record something that would become dated by the end of the day once we know how the 2022 elections turned out. So instead of that, I went in a totally different direction. I don't ask it every episode, but one of the questions I throw out periodically to my guests, especially when I know people have strong opinions, are travel tips, travel hacks that have been acquired over the years, over the decades of working on the road. Working in politics is almost by definition an itinerant profession, and I always had fun with those questions, and listeners seem to enjoy that as a change of pace. And truth be told, when you get a group of political operatives together, once we deal with the immediate topic on hand, often the conversation will drift to travel in some form or fashion. Where were you last week? Where are you going to be next week? Do you have a post-election trip planned? Oh yeah, where are you staying? What airline are you using? Make sure to hit this spot when you go there. All of that sort of thing. And I suspect it's pretty similar with a lot of the vocations that involve being on the road a lot. And I think I travel probably a about average for the political industry, maybe slightly above average among political consultants, but there are certainly many who travel more than I do. There was a year when I literally spent 100 nights in hotel rooms uh, in 2018, and I know that because I tracked it in the hotel app. And that's not the normal year for me, but 50, 75 nights away in a year is not unusual. So that's what, uh, one out of five nights in a hotel, dozens of flights a year, Given that, any ideas to make the grind of the road a little better, a little easier, to get some additional perks, any of that always makes for good conversations. And I, and I think most others who work in politics, have my own ideas, but also am always open to new tips to get smarter about life on the road. So with that prelude, my guest this week is a return guest and someone I know has put a lot of thought into these issues and has strong opinions on many of them, and that is Rebecca Piercy. Rebecca was kind enough to be one of my first guests when I started this podcast, I believe the second guest period, in one of my more popular earlier episodes. And if you haven't listened to that conversation, you should. Rebecca talks her path from a blue-collar kid in Oregon, how she got into politics, cutting her teeth on the famous 2004 Dick Gephardt presidential campaign that didn't win, but produced a ton of leading political talent in the subsequent years. Rebecca managed big statewide races, including the underdog gubernatorial race in Indiana against Mike Pence in 2012. She was the political director and senior advisor to Elizabeth Warren in 2020, and now is a VP and head of political communication at the strategic consulting firm Bryson Gillette. So that's a must-listen episode if you haven't done so already, or maybe go listen again, even if you did when it first came out. But Rebecca is also the first person on this podcast I got into the whole travel conversation with, and I know she has passionate opinions on a lot of this, so I thought she'd be a fun person to invite on for a deeper dive on this front. So Rebecca Piercy, great to have you back. Thanks for diving into this with me. Thanks for having me. Happy to be back. Happy Election Day. 
And I'm not meaning this to be a crossfire segment where we have to have a different opinion on everything. Some of these we may agree, some we may disagree, some I may have strong opinions on and you don't or vice versa. We'll just see how it goes. First of all, you've been a campaign road warrior of some fashion for 20 plus years at this point. Just give a flavor of what was the most intense job or year, the most intense period you had in terms of travel. I think the first job I started traveling a lot was when I was in Florida in 2004 in the general election. And every week I traveled and I thought that was a lot. And it was just in Florida, but you couldn't really drive everywhere. So I had to get on a plane every week or every two weeks. And I knew that was a big deal. The most intensive travel, I think, was obviously with Senator Warren, where I was on the road the bulk of the time I was on the campaign. So about 400 days, 30 states throughout those 400-ish days, lots of cities, lots of airports, lots of minivans, lots of chilies and chipotles and all the sort of restaurants in between. All the hotels look the same. Every Hampton Inn looks exactly the same. And so for me, it got to the point where I would put in my alarm what city I was in just so I knew what was happening that day. What time zone are you in? What state are you in? And it helped me orient myself around the day, get me up to speed on like, okay, what do you have to do today? And what do you kind of have to wear today? Were the big things when you wake up and you're like, I'm pretty sure this is Iowa, but you look outside and it's actually South Carolina. (laughs) It's a disconcerting feeling, but particularly that latter half of that campaign, it was really a lot of nonstop travel. Just what was an average day in that really most intense period on the Warren campaign? You were the senior advisor, political director, often were one of the handful of people staffing, spending time with Senator Warren. Just give a flavor of what an average day is like. I mean, it's usually a fairly early wake up call, just For me as a staff person, not because of anything with the senator, but really just running the rest of the department. So it's conference calls in the morning before breakfast, meet up with the rest of the traveling team and the senator to start heading out to events, sit in the back of a minivan, answer any questions if somebody else in the minivan didn't know the questions or the answers to the questions. Staffing events usually entailed working with our on-the-ground staff to ensure that she understood and knew who was in the room at the clutch, knew who was introducing her, knew of any local political things she needed to know before she hit the stage. And then being a person at the town hall or rally, hopping around to the next one with her and sort of rinse and repeat. You know, it's a lot of being on all the time. And that travel sort of takes it out of you just in terms of time zones mess with you. Travel just kind of messes with you. Being in a minivan messes with you. And so trying to keep your shit together when you're on vacation all the time, except it's not vacation, it's work. And there's really no off button with a lovely, smart, talented Senator Elizabeth Warren who likes to talk about things like a 2% wealth tax after a 12 hour day. And so that was a point where we started like, okay, like we got to break it down a little, like let's do high, low. And so we would do a game of high, low, like what was the best part of your day? What was the worst part of your day? Together as a group of five or six of us, we'd go through like, oh, at this stop, this happened. And it was really cute. Did you see this? Or this was really sad. Did you see that part? My lunch was terrible. Who did that? And it just really depended on where we were and who we were talking to. No two days were the same. And I think that there's something I can point out about every single one of those days, good, bad, significant or not. I couldn't say that about another job. The days all kind of blur together when you're at a desk or you're doing the same thing or you're building the same type of thing. That one, I think it was just very different on any given day. And the travel just added a layer of complexity to the job that I don't think I anticipated. 
given that you were the absolute perfect person to have some of these conversations with. So let's, let's dig into some of this. Let's start with what I think everyone probably agrees is the most onerous part of travel, and that's flying. You know, we can break it out into some of the various phases. I do think there's one where I know we, I'm pretty sure we disagree, and I'll let you go first here. But Rebecca, how early do you think people should get to the airport before a flight? I think that there are two schools of thought here. I know how people, how early people should get to the airport. I will tell you how early I get to the airport. I don't like to stop moving once I hit the airport. I would like to get to my gate as it is boarding my zone. I don't like standing around. I don't like waiting. I just hate being at the airport early. I've missed a lot of flights, but there's always another flight. The problem with my nonchalance about missing flights is sometimes I was doing the the DC to Boston leg a lot or Boston to DC. And the problem was there was always another flight and you probably only have to wait 45 minutes or half an hour for that next flight. Now I understand if it's like a long, longer flight, like I'm going to LA in a couple of weeks. If I miss that flight, then I'm kind of screwed. And so I might put more thought and effort into how much time I will spend at the airport beforehand, but realistically... (laughs) Probably not. <laughs> well, let me ask you a couple of questions. I'll give my two cents. But before that, let yeah. me ask a couple of questions here. This issue about having to sweat whether you're making or missing a flight, for a lot of us, and this, I would put myself into this group, that weighs on you. It's in the back of your head. You got a flight a little later that day. The closer it gets, you start doing the mental math. And I've got to do this before my flight. It starts to hang over your head. Do you just put that out of your head? Do you not have that compunction? Am I going to make my flight? How's this all going to work? Or are you an adrenaline junkie and you're just envisioning yourself Keanu Reeves and speed and you're living on the edge of, yeah, I'm going to make it. Maybe I'm not. <laughs> I, I know what time I need to leave here to make the flight. But also like I live on Capitol Hill and it's DCA. So I know how quick I can get there. So part of it really is like, how many meetings can I still do in my home office and make it to the airport and not have to find a quiet place in the airport or miss a meeting or change a bunch of meetings because I've got to fly somewhere. The other part of it really is just like adrenaline junkie. And I like to see how close I can cut it. Now I like freaking people out on Twitter, like you and Greg Hale and a bunch of other people that think that this is crazy. I think you think I do it all the time. Like there are times I do get to the airport with 15 minutes to spare. And I'm like, what do you do? You just like go get water. But just one other piece, you know, I've missed flights because of connections, you know, connection is late or whatever, but I don't know that I've ever missed a flight because I just didn't get to my original flight on time. Mechanically, what happens? Okay. You miss a flight. You shaved it too close. There was traffic. What do you do? You just turn around and leave. You go find an agent. You figure out what your options are. Demystify that part of the process. That's a a great question. It really depends on the airline and where you're at when you miss the flight. So like if you miss it before security, I usually try to figure out what my options are. If the flight's at four and I get there and it's 4.02 or something like that, and I know I've missed it, but I'm at the airport, I see if there's a five or a six. But if not, then I'll usually go back upstairs at DCA and talk to a ticketing agent. If you're post-security and miss it, same deal. You just go to the gate, wait for the plane to take off because they're not going to reopen the door at all, and then wait for the booking agent to rebook you. A lot of times they will rebook for free. And that might just be me. Like that's my experience. And it's usually because I'm a frequent flyer. It might not be the most 
preferable time slot available. Like it might not be the next flight. It might be two flights from then. And so sometimes it's ended up biting me a little bit. And have I you think- ever talked to yourself? I mean, if the door is closed, the door is closed, I assume, unless you tell me otherwise. But do you feel like you've ever gotten there where the rest of us probably wouldn't have been able to navigate it, but you somehow through force of personality or whatever it is, somehow were able to get get on a flight that maybe the rest of us would have missed? Yeah. And it's not that the door is closed. It's just that I think other people would have recognized like, hey, the ticket says that they're going to close the door at 15 minutes. And really, I know that's seven minutes. So like, I'll go to the gate. And if the door is still open, I'll just get on the plane. People with either not as much experience with missing flights would just be like, well, shit, I missed it. And guess what? You didn't really miss it. You don't want to leave without you either. That's the thing. Being the last person on the plane doesn't always feel good. You probably made it wait if you're really the last person on the plane, but being the second to the last person, right? Like that means you probably timed it just right. There's, they're waiting for one other straggler there. Here's my take. And I do think DCA in Washington is different. Port, a bit of an exception because it's so small, usually has these short security lines, the footprint of it, very small in the layout, no long walkways, no trams between gates. So actually one of the airports that I think is more manageable to show up, get to the gate all within 15, 20, seven minutes for Rebecca Piercy time, which is not just doable in a lot of airports. But here's my take in general on when to get to the airport. And it's why push it? Why take a risk of missing a flight? Why have any degree of stress on that front when our professional work is stressful enough, our lives are stressful enough without inventing new potential problems? You got to be somewhere. Why not get to the airport on the earlier side, get a snack, hit the bathroom, catch up on emails. I do think it's easy to be productive at the airport, knocking out emails, returning calls. I think airport time maybe is even more productive on some tasks, at least, than being in an office. Point being that it's not lost time. I think especially for people in our industry, most of us work out of our laptops, work out of our phones, iPad. So it's not as if an hour sitting at the airport gate is a wasted hour. So why not get there earlier? Don't stress about making the flight. Get a smoothie, hit the bathroom, catch up on emails, leisurely stroll onto the flight without a care in the world. So, you know, clearly I've made you a convert. Without sweating? Like what? (laughs) No, like, I think you're totally right. It's not lost time. And I do think time spent on layovers for me is some of the most productive time of the cycle because it says on your calendar, you're flying, right? So you, you could call people back, but you don't usually schedule like a scheduled call during that time because it's unpredictable whether you'll land on time or your flight's delayed. And so It is that time that you're talking about for me that is like layover time if it's not a direct flight where I really do feel the most productive, but I don't know. It's like a mental block at this point, unless I'm somewhere that is like a little bit more unpredictable or a smaller city with a larger airport. Case in point, Portland, Oregon, my home home airport, smaller city, but a bigger airport and people just move slower. So you really do have to show up there earlier in like a DC or New York, where it's a lot of frequent flyers that know what they're doing. They understand like pre-check and clear and all of these sorts of things that make it move faster on this end. There are moderations I put in place for, <laughs> for different airports. It's not just a seven minute sprint from wherever I get dropped off to whatever gate I'm at. 
Okay, so another piece that I think is related to how early to get to the airport, and I suspect we're in a different place here as well, and I'll go first here. I suspect I'm in the minority, but I'm actually not averse at all to checking a bag, even on a relatively short trip. I guess everybody checks a bag if they're gone somewhere for a week, but I'm not averse at all to checking a bag, even just two or three nights. I know a lot of people view that as a real character flaw to ever check a bag. Uh <laughs> And if I'm gone somewhere for just a day, I won't check a bag usually, or maybe a simple direct flight, but I'm much more open to checking bags than most people. And I'll, I'll run down my, my reasons here. One, it means you don't have to lug your bag around the airport, not through security, not to the gate, not on the plane, not in the overhead compartment, all of that. You don't have to worry about any of that, especially, as you mentioned, if you're on connecting flights. Who wants to lug around a roller bag across an airport and keep up with it for hours and hours when you can just check it and forget about it? One. Number two, you hear this issue of people saying, well, your bag is going to get lost. They're always losing bags. And not to jinx it or anything, but that I do think that's extremely rare these days. The airlines have gotten better at that. I fly mostly Delta. I assume that this is pretty consistent. They have stickers on each bag now with barcodes yeah. and you can track them in your app. You get an alert when they've been loaded, when they've been unloaded, when they're in baggage claim. So I've had almost no issues with lost or delayed baggage over the years. I think maybe that's a concern of a sort of a relic of a previous generation when that when you really were running a, a serious risk of baggage being lost. And I think the last point I'll make is that there's really almost minimal delay in checking your bag in terms of when you're actually leaving the airport. Yeah, if you carry on your bag, you can walk out, not hit baggage claim. Maybe you get out the door a few minutes quicker, but in a big airport, especially, or a big plane that takes a while to deboard, a lot of the time, by the time you schlep off the airplane, go to the bathroom, you maybe get a water, get from your gate to the main terminal, a lot of the times the bags are already circulating or literally just minutes from coming out of the carousel. And of course, baggage claim is almost always adjacent to where you'd get a cab or wherever. So even if you carry on, you're walking right by baggage claim anyway. So I, I dispute the idea that it slows you down. Maybe you lose 10 minutes. Sometimes you don't lose anything. But even if you, if you have a few minutes standing at baggage claim, uh, that's a trade I'm happy enough to make, not having to lug my bag around for hours on end. And maybe actually just one more point. Uh, this is more about packing. But if you are checking a bag, then you can use a nice, big, oversized suitcase. You can use the biggest, you know, the big suitcase in your closet. You don't have to worry about fitting it on the plane, lugging it around. So you can use that bigger suitcase, whether it's just taking more items. You don't have to pack things so tight. If you want to buy something and bring it back with you. Great. You have extra space in your giant suitcase that doesn't have to fit in the overhead. I don't pack my pillow, but I know a lot of people like to bring their pillow. That makes it easy to do that. So you have this luxury of taking. Really? A, yeah, I think a lot of people take their pillow. I'm, I'm pretty content with hotel pillows. I know that is a thing where some people like to bring their own pillows, which is much more manageable, right? If you have the big suitcase. So I'll leave it at that. You Maybe you agree, maybe you disagree. Where are you on the whole notion of when, if ever, to check a bag? Well, I disagree with checking a bag in almost every instance. I think, like, I think I did a month in Europe with a checked bag. Which is to say I did laundry and coordinated my tr my outfits very carefully and almost never checked a bag on the Warren campaign because it was always like, go, go, go. That 10 minutes at baggage claim or the thought that they could lose something that I needed for the next five or six states was just like a risk not worth taking. 
and minutes that we didn't have to give up. And so that's where I think it got very serious for me to not check a bag and also to think back to coordinating outfits so that you're not taking a bunch of clothes that you can only wear once and don't match anything else in your bag. You know, I've had lost luggage before and it's not been a big deal. I've gotten it back. You do hear horror stories, but I think you're by and large, right, that it doesn't happen as much as it it used to. And certainly I think Delta is above and beyond with the stickers and with the, you know, in the app, they'll tell you where your bag is, if it's on the plane or off the plane or at the baggage carousel. So generally I don't check bags. I've recently had my bag checked when I was one of the last people on the plane and didn't get any of the overhead space. And it was fine. It was basically out as soon as I got back to DCA. Which would be another point in the uh, get there early, right? So you don't have to fight for it. It would. (laughs) Yeah, it would have been one of those, Zach. It would have been one of those. And the shitty thing is, I was definitely at the airport, but just misjudged where the gate was. You know, like LaGuardia has a facelift, guys, and it's great, but everything takes a lot longer than it used to to walk to get from gate to gate. Let's talk about once you're on the plane. Everyone hates the middle seat, of course, I assume. But where are you on an aisle seat or a window seat if you have a choice? What else do you take into account in terms of what seat you prioritize? Okay, this is going to sound crazy. Window seat for short flights, aisle seat for long flights access to the bathroom without having to talk to anybody and then privacy on the shorter flights where you probably won't have to go to the bathroom. So you don't have to, again, talk to anybody. I think I was less aisle oriented prior to COVID, but now that I'm doing a lot more longer haul flights, I think that I appreciate the aisle a lot more, even just to get up and stretch your legs. It just feels like you have a little bit more room with that extra space next to you without another human. I think like, you're right, middle seats are the worst. It just is what it is. It comes with the territory sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that this is is one we're probably on the same page. And again, everybody generally gets that exit rows are nice and I'm I'm on the taller side. I'm 6'2", so a little extra leg room is good. Like you, I usually prefer the window privacy. People aren't crawling over me, Uh, you know, because I arrived at the airport early. I rarely am in a situation where I have to utilize the small, awkward bathroom on the airplane. So I like to be on the window. Occasionally there's a nice view, but mostly just so people aren't using you as a jungle gym and not having to pass a ginger ale to the person next to me. One thing I've taken into account lately is try to avoid being in a row too near the bathrooms both for the obvious reasons that I won't go into a lot of detail, but also because other passengers from all over the plane tend to congregate around the bathrooms and stand in line. There's a lot of foot traffic. It's like sitting next to a subway platform. The one other factor I take into account, which maybe this is obvious, is that everything else equal, even in the main cabin or coach, I prefer being toward the front of the plane just so you're off the plane a little earlier, right? If Especially if you have that tight connection, being in row, yeah. even if it's the same seat in row 19 versus the same seat in row 32, potentially that makes a difference in making a, a tight connection or missing it. It totally does. And I'll go back on your sitting by the bathroom point. I've started looking at plane configurations too, because sometimes you're in a good row, but you're also right next to the bathroom. And it's like, what? No, this is supposed to be a good seat. You're just having people jam by you the whole time. That has really just ruined a couple of flights for me. But yeah, you're right about that too, with 19, sitting in the same seat in row 19 versus row 32. It can make the difference between making your your connection or not. And it's also just nobody likes being on these enclosed two strangers, right? Like it's not actually fun. None of it is really great. Nobody's like, oh, wait, I got to finish this movie. (laughs) You know? (laughs) 
Well, that teased this up well. So where are you? What is your philosophy? You're on a plane, a flight that's a couple hours. Do you try to work as much as possible on a plane? Do you try to relax some? Do you like to watch the movies? There's always work to do. There are people who immediately pull out their laptop once a plane takes off, never let up until touchdown. There are people who just use it as a chance to unplug, try to sleep or watch a movie or chill out. How about you? Do you have a usual when you're in the air for a couple hours? It's probably more work. Work until, you know, if it's a late hour on the East Coast, work until a reasonable hour and then probably read. If it's a shorter flight and it's I'm all on good East Coast hours, I'll probably work the whole time, honestly. I don't usually watch the movies. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I do like, I think it's maybe monthly they update them with new releases. Yeah. So they're, they cycle in. I'm mostly talking about Delta, but Delta has, I don't know, hundreds of movies, but then they have 10 or 15 each. I think it's monthly. They cycle in new releases. So that's mostly where I've seen most of the newer movies uh, is oh, wow. watching oh. the Delta edit, not necessarily the full, <laughs> the full thing, but the Delta edit in my seat. And I like you, I try to keep up with the email, uh, but it's nice to have, yeah. there's always that built-in excuse of being in the air to delay getting something out, but it does stress me out to know that I'm about to have two and a half hours worth of unread emails deluge me yeah. you know, once we land. So if there's something urgent, I'll, I'll try to deal with that. Keep an eye on email on the plane, maybe do some real work. Also not feeling like I just have to be completely absorbed in everything. You know, yeah, often I'll plug in and have a movie on, maybe not watching every second of it. Better to have something that uh, you just need a sense of it. You know, a Michael Bay movie is probably a little bit better than the latest French art film, probably a better fit, but enough to feel like where I'm actually unplugging a bit from the real world. You mentioned earlier you had some opinions on airline Wi-Fi. Yeah, I do. I do have opinions about this. I am so mad every time I have to pay $30 for shitty internet on a flight. I just don't want to do it anymore. Like now I have a pass with Delta and it's been really good since I had the pass. It's like $49.95 a month. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I'll get on some of these other carriers and it's still obscenely expensive for a flight long pass and it's slow. It's like too slow to download pictures on a text or too slow to download a clip to watch or anything like that. Or it's sort of in and out. You think you've sent four emails and then you realize, oh, wait, nothing actually went through. Or maybe I sent the same email four times. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, it's happened both ways, honestly. But yeah. You and I both mentioned Delta, you know, and this could apply to elements beyond just an airline, but what is your take on being loyal to a specific airline versus finding the most convenient flight or the best price? Do you have hard and fast rules where you are on a brand loyalty? Yes and no. I think first and foremost, I would go for brand loyalty just because I feel I feel like I've worked Delta into my life in enough ways that I've got a lot of miles and a lot of status there. It would be my first choice. But if I know I'm not going to make a meeting or an event based on a Delta flight, I've got a backup and a backup to that backup. I think the most important thing that I was taught before I started working at the DCCC was to just get accounts with every provider so that you are always accruing points no matter what. But it should also go in order that if Delta doesn't work, then it's American or United or JetBlue or Southwest or whatever it is. Just making sure that you're collecting points across the board on your airlines, your hotels, your rental cars, because I've done full vacations on the points from work travel at the end of every cycle. I can usually do a longer vacation, pay with points on hotel, 
car and airlines, which is is wild. It's free except for the $6.20 you got to pay in taxes. Yeah. And I, every now and then I'll talk to somebody who travels a lot, who just seems to be, has not uh, made that uh, decision to become brand loyal. And it's always a head scratcher to me. I'm a Delta guy. I'm a, I'm a Hilton guy on hotels, which usually means Hampton Inns or Hilton Garden Inns, maybe a double tree. And I haven't crunched the numbers to quantify exactly how valuable it is, but you do get the periodic upgrades, a better seat on a plane, or maybe a better room at the hotel. You accrue these miles and points or to get free flights and stays you can use. Personally, my sense is the companies aren't as generous as they were maybe 10 or 20 years ago as to how the points and miles accumulate. But yeah, you can be smart about it, get some free flights, some free hotel rooms out of it. And beyond that, and maybe this is something where I'm just wired to be an easy mark for them. But, you know, when you're on the road, I do think being able to see your points on your and your status accumulate in real time, there is this little bit of adrenaline rush or the same thing that makes people play Candy Crush or Angry Birds, where you get this little rush when you reach that next level of status, or you think I've got a free fly, hit this brown number in my points. It may totally be a ruse by the capitalist fat cats. I don't know. But when you're on the road a lot, you look for anything you can do to make it seem more worthwhile. And I've always gotten like you, and then given the advice that you should choose an airline early in your career, whatever the main carrier is in your your home airport, and stick with it. The hotel one, I think, is a bit more arbitrary. I defaulted toward Hilton, and there are two or three others out there generally trying to stick with the hotel chain as well. I didn't think of myself as a mark for the points until now, Zach, but I totally am. I'll check the points like the minute I get off the plane. Yeah. How close am I to Delta yeah. Diamond? Because somehow... I've decided that this matters to me. <laughs> right. One thing, and I suspect you have a higher status on Delta. I don't have free access to these airport lounges. I do have some credit card I have that gives me access, pay, I think it's $39 to Delta, and I can get into the uh, Delta Sky Club. All of the airlines have them. I think most of the large airports will have most, of, if not all, of the options. Are you a believer in these Sky Clubs, airport lounges? Do you think people should be on the lookout for ways to get access to those? Are those overrated? Where are you on airport lounges? Well, I'm generally a fan, but I also think that it's like everything with these airports depends on the airport. DCA is great. LAX has a great Delta lounge. LaGuardia has got a great new one, but I've also been in some really crappy ones too. And it just kind of depends on where you are. Airports are almost always in a, in a stage of construction at some point. And so sometimes the whole thing is closed for construction, right? And you can't get into whatever lounge you thought you had access to. And it really is just like a, it's a bar with a salad bar guys. <laughs> and like every seat has a plug. And if the airport was just like that, instead of making it be a lounge, wouldn't that just be great? But since the lounge is the only thing that has, you know, the free drinks and the free salad and the free chargers, I think that's where I would like to spend the time I do have at the airport. I prefer to be in a lounge or like, this is going to sound weird, but like if I'm on a layover, I actually like to be really close to my gate so I don't miss anything. Like I'm that person that will walk to the gate and then walk away just so I make sure it's there. You want to put eyes on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, all that makes sense to me. I guess at some level you get free access to those. I'd pay 39 
dollars, maybe some combination of status, but I think mostly because of a Delta card I have. At first blush, you think, oh, $39 to spend a couple hours. I've got to lay over a couple hours, $39. That's a little steep. But then you start doing the math. Okay, well, what is it going to cost for me to go to the airport Chili's or right. to go get a pre-made sandwich and a Dasani or whatever? You can easily spend, and I have before, it just what feels like a pretty a pretty pedestrian order of chicken fingers and a iced tea or something, the right. plus tax, plus tip. And all of a sudden you're out $40, $50 and you could have had your run of things for $39 at the airport lounge. It's true. And I feel like I've done that math. They're not 24 hours, but they're open pretty early. I know mm-hmm. the one at Logan opens at 4.30 or 5. They also have the thing that I have found that is very useful there is business centers. So you can print, you can scan, you can shred, you can do a whole lot of stuff that you can't do anywhere else in the airport from some of these lounges. Well, that's interesting. I do, I, I do see the business centers. I never actually see anybody using them. So you're the person, usually they're covered in cobwebs and nobody's ever really. <laughs> it's me. I, I did break the uh, shredder at the Portland Delta lounge last spring. So <laughs> and, well, I've got a couple of two sort of miscellaneous things here. Let me throw one out. If you've got something we haven't touched on, we can go back and forth. But I've just got a couple here. One is airline coffee. And I should preface this. I don't have a very refined palate as it relates to coffee. Coffee's pretty much coffee to me, whether served on an airplane or in the basement of some hipster coffee shop. And I have no doubt that airline coffee is bad, but they actually serve it at the right temperature. Any other time you get coffee, you have to wait around for five minutes or 10 minutes before you can drink it. I always jump the gun. You burn your mouth the next three days. It's this whole production on a plane. They give it to you at just the right temperature. I assume they don't want scalding hot coffee on a plane and all of that. It's like the coffee's been sitting on your table at home for 12 minutes. You can drink it without the whole production. That's the case for almost every other time when you're served coffee and you have to hold on to this this cup of lava until it cools off 10 or 15 minutes after you get it. That's my take on airline coffee. You want to know what's weird? I don't think I've ever had coffee on a plane unless I bring it on because I've heard that it's so bad. I have no doubt that that's the case. I do think it's like burnt or scalded. And it's not that I'm a coffee snob either. It's more just like if I have gotten to the airport early enough, I will get a cup of coffee if it's morning. If not, though, just like doesn't even occur to me to get a coffee on the plane. The one other thing I have, and this is more about getting to and from the airport, and we both work in democratic progressive politics. Hopefully this doesn't make me a bad progressive, but I've gotten pretty reliant on ride share. I default to Lyft usually. Uh, I think I gravitated in that direction because they had an ability to tip the driver before Uber did. And to the previous conversation about loyalty points, you can connect your Lyft to yeah. Delta. Uh, so yep. every time I take a Lyft, I get some pittance of Delta miles. Well, you know. miles. Exactly. exactly. And it goes what? back to the idea that that it's the most minimal of miles. I get 20 miles for a lift ride when a free Delta ticket is 50,000 miles, but it's still nice to see the progress. Uh, Anyway, I got sidetracked. My current approach is to, I'll take a lift to the airport for my hotel, for my meeting, wherever I am. But from the airport, I've gotten where I will actually go to the taxi line, the old sort of old-fashioned taxi line, take the old-fashioned taxi. One, they've been lining up there. I feel a little sheepish with rideshare drivers swooping in to get me when the cabs have been lined up for a while. But two, I think it's just actually more convenient these days to grab a taxi from the airport versus rideshare. The taxis are lined up there right outside of baggage claim usually. More convenient than using your app to get a driver. Not a secret that a lot of the airports don't exactly make it easy or intuitive to find the rideshare at the airport. So over the last few years, I've gotten into the habit of rideshare to the airport, but a taxi from the airport. 
Okay. So this might be the one thing we definitely are in agreement a hundred percent on. I am usually rideshare to the airport, taxi home, and especially from DCA, it's so easy to just walk outside and get in a line and they always know where they're going, which I appreciate. I find the taxi drivers, no matter what city you're in, usually understand the city better than our friends, the rideshare drivers. It's kind of, it is old school, but I really like it. And if you haven't been in a car with a DC taxi driver where you're like, talk to about the politics of the day and they're listening to NPR and they know exactly all the shortcuts to take. Like, you know, it's an experience for everybody, I feel like. Well, we broached hotels here and there, but what have you picked up about smart hotel decisions? When you're traveling, almost always we're staying in a downtown area with plenty of choices, different chains, different price points, different sizes of hotels, or even if you're staying at an airport hotel or somewhere off the interstates, often these days they have this whole neighborhood of hotels, the hotel district, six or eight different hotels all batched together. So how are you deciding where you stay? So I like a hotel that has food on demand, even like a little convenience store in the lobby is better than having to go outside of the hotel itself for food. And that's one convenience, but two, what if you don't know where you are or what if it's really cold or really hot or raining or snowing or whatever? That's been one of my big things as of late is just making sure that there's access to food on site but also proximity to wherever you need to be next. If it's the airport the next morning, I'd rather be closer to the airport than be downtown and have to figure out how to get to the airport, which isn't always fun. Like staying by the airport's never fun, but if it's convenient and helps with getting the plane on time, Zach, I am into it, right? (laughs) But it's all, you know, I am brand loyal on hotels too, but it's less stringent on it, I guess. What is your hotel brand? Marriott. I used to do Hilton, but now I'm now I'm Marriott. But I think I'm still gold at, at Hilton. What made you make the jump? I don't know. I just decided, I think it, it might have happened in the last year. Proximity in the places I was traveling, I guess. You know, we're not staying at Ritz's. These are, right. you know, Marriott's. Yeah. I still am mostly a Hilton guy. Even at that, you look at the Hilton app, you put in an address and you get three or six or eight different... Yeah, because they have different little brands. Yeah, exactly. Right? You know, they're yeah. all pretty much default to price at that point, finding the cheaper option. Look at location to some degree as well. When you're traveling for work or on the client's time, you want to be frugal. Right. But this, I right. think, would even go into my own personal decision making where I'm just not looking to pay a premium for an actual Hilton hotel versus a Hampton Inn. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of Hampton Inn. I'm sure there are the equivalent Marriott chains or the yeah, equivalent, yeah. but very consistent, free internet, free breakfast. They have the sweet shop, I think is what they call it, the Hampton Inn yeah, with the drinks. And the, if you need a quick bite to eat, most of these Hampton Inns are five floors or eight floors. So it's not one of these things where you're on floor 27 and stuck on an elevator for 10 minutes. Yeah, I just never really have seen much value in the higher end hotel versus the budget travel-friendly hotels like a Hampton Inn. True is another Hilton budget property that's good. And the other thing that I think about the budget hotels, the Hampton Inns, True, is that most of them seem to have been built in the last 10 or 20 years as that type of hotel model has exploded. And I do think there's something to be said for a newer hotel that is more budget minded actually being maybe nicer or better in some ways than the higher end hotels by name that were actually built in the 60s or 70s that may or may not have had the upkeep to keep up with the time. So I'm a big Hampton Inn guy. 
I love a Hampton Inn and I love like a courtyard Marriott. So I think that's probably the equivalent on the Marriott end. But man, you are right about some of those nicer hotels that have not been kept up. And the thing that I saw a lot of during the Warren campaign is that we were not brand loyal. We did hotels.com for the campaign. And so we were able to accrue more nights that we then could use over and over again for the for campaign travel. So it's like buy 10, get one free at a certain price point. But it meant we were never in like a Hilton for too long or a Marriott. It was just a hotel, which was great and really gave us a lot of exposure to all kinds of hotels, big and small. We were never in one place for very long. It's very, very true about those bigger hotels that have a nicer name that haven't been kept up. They're just not as nice as some of these newer, smaller, even the quirkier ones that you can get on hotels.com that don't have like a big parent company that are really kept up well. You wouldn't get if you were on just the apps like like Hilton or Marriott. And when the campaign did Hotels.com, so the campaign got some benefit from it. They were able to lower travel cost. Does that mean that the individual that like you and the other people were not getting it? Were you able to double dip? No, no benefit from it other than somebody else booking our hotels. (laughs) No. So it went straight back to the campaign. My only other thought, and maybe you have some others on hotels, but the only other thought is a little bit more of a soapbox. It's rose a little bit in talking about rideshare is now you can tip your driver in the apps. And I really wish there was a way, and if there is, I'm not familiar with it, but to tip housekeeping staff via the Hilton app, yeah. or maybe or maybe just when they ask you to check in, you feel like it would be a natural way to do it. I do my best to remember to tip the housekeeping staff. I don't always have cash on me. Sometimes you're leaving the hotel room in a hurry. Sometimes you're on the phone. You don't think of it. And these big international companies like Hilton and Marriott ought to be able to figure out a way to make it easier to tip the housekeeping staff. That is a great point. I would love it if they made it something that we could do electronically, because usually it's like a handwritten note from some lovely person who lives in that community, who's been in the room once or twice or however many times you're staying. I'm like you, I love to tip in cash because it's the only way you can do it. But if I don't have cash, then I I do feel bad about it. I've got a couple, not in any bucket necessarily. We can go back and forth. I'll start with one that's more of a complaint, which is just how difficult the rental car process is. I really (laughs) only... Only rent a car as a total last resort these days, not because I don't want to have a rental car. I'm not averse to driving. Sometimes I might prefer that to whatever I end up doing. But the process is just so difficult, unpredictable. I don't know if that's an industry that has been or should be disrupted, or I guess Zipcar does something. I've never used a Zipcar. But almost any time I've had to rent a car in the past decade, some part of the process has been a pain in the ass. I mean, so, so I've gotten to where I will try to pay cab drivers or rideshare drivers under the table if I need to go an hour out of town, if I've got to go from Austin to San Antonio or Detroit to Toledo, which everything else being equal, I'd probably just rent a car, do it myself. But I've had such bad experiences with that, I find any other alternative I can, including sometimes finding these shuttle services where you load up with eight other schmucks in a van, go from point A to point B. So that's part of the travel process where I don't have any tips other than just I've thrown in the towel on rental cars. So sad for you, honestly. So I started doing Avis when I worked at the DCCC. And the thing about this that might blow your mind is like the loyalty helps here too, because they've got all your stuff on file. So I don't even stand in the line at the main terminal. I go out to the preferred 
And there's a sign that says Piercy R and then the stall number where my vehicle is. And I've given them my preference and credit card number and they already charged me. So I just go out and get in a car and then I show the person at the gate my ID and then then I'm on my way. So like, yes, I, I do agree though, because if I'm not booked in Avis, I understand that the process is very messy and it takes a long time. Yeah. And I experienced this most recently when I was in Florida of all places. And I was like, I would, I would rather hitchhike than deal with this line or whatever needs to happen with the people here and whatever car they're going to give me. It was bad. It was really, really bad. I get your sentiment here, but I think you should reevaluate some of your choices with <laughs> how you're going places. The shuttle's a pretty good, pretty good run though. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and this is one where I never did it enough that I really developed any any loyalties. I accept that critique is I I should find a better route. So I have one more thing. What are, is there anything else on your list? So packing, and I think I mentioned this the first time I was on this podcast, packing cubes have saved me on several occasions because here's, here's what I do with packing cubes. It's like all tops in one, all bottoms in one, all underwear and socks in one, all workout clothes in one. And then it, it just all fits in my little suitcase so nicely. Even as I get searched by TSA, they comment on how nicely my bag is packed, which I think is a real badge of honor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're going to miss your flight. Like at least you've got that as your reason for missing it. Another thing that I recently discovered are these My Cadence capsules. They're small. They're about three ounce little caplets that you put your toiletries in. And then you don't even have to take on things that are the size of a typical three ounce bottle or whatever. And it's just made my toiletry packing a lot, lot easier and smaller too, which helps for not checking a bag. Those are really good tips. Let me tee up something on the airline that I bet you and I are largely in in sync on. I'll let you uh, speak to it. What is your advice when people say, hey, you travel a lot. Should I get this pre-check? Should I get this clear? Give your take on pre-check clear. I think they're time savers, but again, it depends on if your home airport has both or one or the other. I think it saved me a lot of time having both here at DCA, but I also did the entire Warren campaign without clear. And I think I only got clear because I was going to miss a flight at LaGuardia one day when I was traveling either with the Senator or shortly behind the Senator and needed to make a flight. And they talked me into getting clear because the other line was so long. I wasn't going to make it unless I got clear. I like them. Yeah. Do you have I have both. I fly a lot out of Atlanta. You know, Atlanta's big and big and huge and has these massive security lines, which often move pretty quickly, but but are just a big mass of humanity. And my experience has been it's a big difference between neither of them and pre-check and less of a difference between pre-check and clear. Maybe this is oversimplification, but it seems like clear mostly just lets you go to the front of the pre-check line. Uh, but so in my mind, the big leap has been going from regular security line to the pre-check where you're not having to take stuff out of your bags and your belt. And, and it's usually a shorter line, a simpler line. Don't have to take out your laptop. And so that, my experience has been pre-check is, is a big time saver. And maybe to your point, it just depends airport by airport if clear is, is helpful as well. Yeah. I've got one more strong opinion here. I'll give my last one and then you can give your uh, anything else that is, is sort of straggling here. And I've become you know, over the last year or so in a big evangelist for Panera Bread, but really specifically the uh, the 
This the, is so perfect. The Panera Unlimited Drink Club. And I really need to find out who the Panera lobbyist is, pastor them about sponsoring my podcast. And it's actually called the Unlimited Sip Club. But I don't know, that always makes me feel a little pretentious. So I call it the Unlimited Drink Club. But and it's really relevant when you travel uh, because Panera breads are all over the place. I think a lot of us have Paneras in close proximity, your house or office. But $9.99 a month, a free drink. And it's not just a free drink every day. It's a free drink every two hours. Uh, so you can go in the morning, afternoon, night. They open early, close late, including large sizes. So it's not just the child size, small portions, a small cup, hot coffee, iced coffee, hot tea, iced tea, those fancy iced green tea, sodas, all of that. Unlimited drink, not just one free drink a day, one free drink every two hours, no obligation to buy anything else. $9.99 a month. And really, you can get $10 of value in a day if you're smart about it. But they have these new sign-up specials. If you let your subscription lapse, they'll send you emails with discounts. So you really, if you if you play your cards right, are rarely paying the full $9.99 a month. So I've made that part of my almost daily routine. And I looked it up just as we were talking over 2,100 locations in the U.S. So chances are when you're traveling, you can also get some use out of it as well. Uh, and again, if anyone knows uh, the Panera marketing department or their lobbyist, tell them to send me a note. That's my advocacy for the Panera Unlimited Drink Club. I absolutely love that. No, I hadn't thought of doing something that that nationally pervasive on my journeys. I don't I don't have like a routine where I wherever I go because for a long time I didn't get to have my own routine. It was whatever Senator Warren's routine was, which as I mentioned was a lot of Chipotle and Mexican food. I'm going to do this though, Zach. This is amazing. Well, I think I might can send you a code so you won't be again, you won't be paying for the full 9.99 a month freight. I think you can get a get some sort of discount. Well, what did you pick up about eating on the road? Is there one of those places that is more consistent? How did you approach eating when you're having to eat? You know, you don't have a lot of choices and maybe don't have a control over the where's and the yeah. when's you're eating. It's one, pack snacks cuz you never really know what's going to happen. I think that's important for traveling solo too, because, you know, some of these flights, you don't have food options on a cross country flight. If you're sitting in coach, you might be able to buy a cheese box, but what if they don't have a cheese box by the time they get to you? And then my, my favorite airport jam outside of the lounge is a vino volo where you can get a flatbread and a flight of wine for not an insignificant amount of money, but it's quick. It is very quick. I realize it is probably microwaved food, but it is something that I know I can count on in a lot of airports. And it's usually quiet too, which is where I can get a lot of work done. Let's end on this, Rebecca, and I'll start on this one to give you a moment to ponder. Okay. Uh, but let's both give a recommendation for a place to visit somewhere not on the normal travel circuit or not a tourist hub, but somewhere you enjoyed on your travel there and you think others might as well. For me, that is uh, Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I've only been there a couple of days. I was there in 2018. I did the polling for the Democratic gubernatorial candidate, Billy Sutton. Uh, but I got to spend a couple of days there, thought it was really nice, fun, walkable downtown, enough going on to be interesting, but not overwhelming. Have the actual Sioux Falls running through town, a nice park area. 
You can take that in and actually walk across some of the rocks that comprise the falls. And I often fly out of Atlanta, as I mentioned. So there's a direct flight from Atlanta to Sioux Falls. Sioux Falls certainly could be a base for a longer Dakota vacation, which I've not taken, being in the Mount Rushmore, the Black Hills, go further west, whatever else is out there. But I do think for a nice weekend getaway, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, a good option, change of pace, see that Great Plains part of the country that doesn't always get a lot of attention. So that'd be my recommendation. How about you, Rebecca? Give me a a spot that you think more people should consider putting on their itinerary. Here is a place that I have visited in the past and have spent a good amount of time in or thinking about this cycle is Pittsburgh. And I think it's underrated as a city and as a a place where you would want to go spend time on purpose, not just for work. So we've done some walks through the town, through downtown, actually, on both sides of the river. And it's just been a lot of fun to see how the bridges really connect the city in a way that I didn't realize before I actually spent time walking over the bridges and under the bridges and back over the bridges. It's got a beautiful skyline and there's just so much history there in downtown Pittsburgh with the inclines, the old mills, the people that tell the stories about what Pittsburgh used to be like and some of the suburbs around it versus what it's like now. I think it's really just a cool place to go spend a few days, learn about, and it's probably really beautiful there right now for GOTV too. I like that a lot. Pittsburgh, like a lot of those Rust Belt northeastern cities, really has this personality in history to it that deserves a second, third look. Well, thanks for jumping in the pool with me on this, a different kind of episode and discussion. Rebecca Piercy, this was a lot of fun. Thanks, Zach. Talk to you soon. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the Pro Politics Podcast. Please subscribe so you can access each episode first thing every Tuesday morning. And if you're so inclined, leave a rating and a short review on your podcast app to help more people find this podcast. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook for updates on upcoming guests. Thanks for listening.